Welcome to In the Landscape, a podcast on all things landscape design and care related with your hosts, Kate and Charles Sadler. And it's another episode of In the Landscape. Thank you so much for joining us on what we hope is a good day for you. And it's a good day for us here in the studio, Mm -hmm. the home studio. (laughs) Well, we stay at home and uh, dream of landscapes that are, Mm -hmm. you know, a part of our lives out and about. We, We miss our landscapes. We miss the plants that we've worked closely with in our practice. So we're making do here and uh, Mm -hmm. we hope you are as well. So I'm Kate Sadler, one of your hosts, and with me is co-host Charles Sadler. Good to be here. Hi, Charles. (laughs) I remember the very first episode we recorded and trying to even get your name out. It's all new. You're it's right. not even you're not even quite sure how to say hello. <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> first episode are. I think we recorded at your mother's. Yeah, that's right. Boy, we were like raring to go. And here we are, I guess episode 41, which means we're coming up on one year. Mm-hmm. I think once we've done an episode a week, so 52 will be one full year. Right. That's pretty exciting. Yeah. I hope we've come up with enough rich material to keep going and we'll see how far we get. Today's episode is a strange, I, don't, I shouldn't say strangely, but it feels a little bit strangely exciting <laughs> when we hit upon a topic that we, I don't know that we've covered in great detail. So it's something we kind of wanted to go into a little bit more. We're constantly referring to the plants that we use in landscape design and how to pick the right plant for the right place. And of course, we've also talked a lot in terms of just design principles how to evaluate things like the program in the landscape so that you know what you need, you know, how you need to organize your materials in order to put stuff into place. But one element we haven't talked about a lot is the materials themselves. Everything from paving to fencing to pot material that you'll put your plants in if you have a little container garden. Right. All of that makes a big difference in the landscape because it's a new area to introduce form and color and function. So all the design principles we think about then go into each individual decision you make in terms of your materials. Right. So differentiate the different professions that would handle different materials. So garden design would do garden. I mean, landscape architecture is pretty heavy on materials. We wear lots of hats. We do some landscape architecture where we're designing walls and walks. We do landscape design where it's generally heavier on the green materials, but definitely knowing, having a material knowledge and a material library of your experience, that's, that makes you a better designer. And materials are so neat because they're really an opportunity to introduce what I almost think of as a real sense of place. Mm. Like, of course, we can plant with natives, which would give us a sense of a place, but we don't always. You know, folks like plants that have a variety of traits. And so we often bring in things that you wouldn't necessarily, you're not like necessarily trying to replicate what you would see on a hike in terms of, of vegetation. But one of the favorite materials of all time that I remember is in the little garden that my grandmother had near Flathead Lake. And the material that you sat on, the little deck, sort of the little patio, I guess was the, the lake rocks. And they have this, oh. this very distinctive sound. Mm-hmm. And they're, of course, smoothed by the lake effect over time. And it's just a matter of kind of collecting them and placing them. And then there's driftwood about. And so that was, uh, if I think of 
kind of like my favorite garden material of all time, I would say that's it. And it's because it's so, it's so of the place. And so I remember sort of the water sitting on the shore there and the sound of the water lapping the shore and the sound of the rocks. It was very distinctive. Because it's not a sandy, it's not a sandy beach there on, on Flathead Lake in Montana. It's, uh, it's got good sized rocks. Mm -hmm. And so the water is kind of being diffused around all these rocks. And it's a little different from the effect you get with like sand at the seashore or something. Right. So that's <laughs> from your auditory perspective. I know we talked about sensory gardens last episode. So it's something to consider that material can introduce some of those effects that we've talked about. But we've also talked about accessibility and how the materials that you select mm -hmm. for things like paving can actually have a great impact on uh, whether it's slip resistant or, of course, you don't want pebbles if you're moving with wheels. And there are things to consider there. And there's new technology too, where some of the public gardens, or the, let's say it's a Japanese public garden, and they want it to be handicap accessible, which is you know, vital, that it's, so it's, everybody can use it equally. There is technology of compacting different types of crushed rock, gravel. The Brooklyn Botanic Garden has done that in their Japanese garden. So it looks pretty traditional. Now the path, it was widened, so people can pass. You can definitely could be a person in a wheelchair could use it. It's compacted to a certain level. A wheelchair or a walker or a cane, it can be quite, it passes that, you know, that, that suitability. And then at the New York Botanic Garden, their new, relatively new native garden, it's very small pebbles, which are set in, in a resin. So it looks like pebbles, but it's not moving. Well, and I think that's um, maybe something to go into in greater detail here, because some of the materials we're going to discuss are very old, very traditional, and yet there is a field <laughs> of material science where people are trying to find better ways to, or, or maybe even more, more accessible in terms of cost, like just, or as we will get into in terms of permeability, because we can't create too many spaces that just have endless runoff. So mm -hmm. the, the science behind improving materials or at least adapting them in a way that meets our needs and maybe in a way that's price conscious is, is a good mm -hmm. goal. So we'll talk through that. But we'll also talk through how you contact the companies that make these and then assess them for your own needs because you can't very well go in and do a trial run. Oh, <laughs> you, know, yeah, you, good can, point. you might get a sample, but you can't necessarily like pave the driveway and then see if it works or doesn't work. So you have to be careful up front about assessing which materials you, are going to work for you and getting some expert input there. Right. You know, for like along the lines of materials, it occurs to me, there's the Green Building Council, there's the Sites Initiative, there's the sustainability movement. So within that, whether if let's say you're building a house and you want it to be a, a like to get a green building seal of approval, or if it's a public space, one of the components is where the material is sourced within a limited distance. So it's, it, it can vary, but it's at 50 miles from the site. Is it within 500 miles? So when you're at a stone dealer, there might, you might fall in love with a stone that came from Italy or from South Africa or China. If your goal was to have it to come to be close to this site, then those materials wouldn't work. And so that's, that whole mindset of if it's going to be on a ship and trucking and, it, and that contributes to pollution and 
So if you're thinking about everything from paving to containers to fencing, is this something that you should be evaluating all together at the same time? Should you be making these decisions and comparisons collectively or can it be done piecemeal? Doing it, Amy, the, the luxury of design is that you do do it collectively. And an idea board where you're, you're collecting images of gardens, materials, and other elements that appeal to you. So you could do that on a personal level. As designers, we do that. And so we're weighing, we're more or less putting together these different elements, the plants, all the different materials, colors, textures, and making sure that there's an overall harmony to it. So there might be something that you fall in love with, that red rose bush. And when you see it on the idea board, you're just like, it's, it clashes with everything else. All the other colors are very subtle. And that happens often where the, the client wants something where it doesn't quite fit in. And there can be accommodations. Let's have those rose bushes at the front of the house in planters where they don't compete with anything. They don't clash with anything else. But if you don't have that planning, you can have materials where maybe they're not suitable to the weather or where it's hard to repair it or it's, it's Well, let's slippery. talk about maintenance and repair. So um, something like, and again, cost, I think, is what often features into materials. Because uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but plants are not inexpensive, but materials can be quite expensive <laughs> depending on how much you need. So what should you be thinking in terms of maintenance and repair up front? And are some things, some, some materials better than others, depending on what you're using them for? There's a great article, so we can share that link, in a fine gardening magazine where they really sort through the selection of paving materials. So the, on the one end, an aggregate, a gravel, a pea stone, those would all be synonymous with each other. That's one of the least expensive materials. It's flexible. Whatever shape your space is, is it, it's easy to work with. You more or less use a wheelbarrow. <laughs> so that would be on the one end. There's what they call native gravel. So it's harvested in most parts of the world. There's some type of gravel, which, and that would vary. And so like on the other end of the spectrum, granite is going to last forever. It's very hard to work with. You have to be very skilled. It's hard to cut it. It's hard to transport it. There's almost very little maintenance where gravel, you're going to get weeds. It's going to get dispersed. And maybe it gets kicked into the lawn or if you, so in the design process, you would weigh the cost, the benefit, the maintenance with fencing. The maintenance is a big issue that is it going to be need to be painted every five years, seven years in the, in the Southern U S where it's very humid, it might need to be power washed maybe every year or two. So there might be a way if, if our listeners are handy with a spreadsheet to kind of evaluate the, the cost over time. You may not just want to think about the initial installation cost, but if you could project, well, we're going to have to do a power washing every year, and then we're going to have to do and it's only going to last so long. And you can kind of evaluate, depending on if you have the money up front, of course. I mean, that always makes a difference, but something to consider there. You mentioned weeds. I'm curious. I don't know that we can all go places like Flathead Lake and easily mm. get out. It's like you can't probably frowned upon to go collect a bunch of rocks and then put them in your yard. I can't think of many places where that's okay. But, um, but assuming you were collecting materials for your yard, is there anything you should be aware of? Like, can you transport, 
you know, microbes or things that shouldn't go from place to place. I, I just know we're so sensitive to things like biosecurity. And I'm just curious if like mm. the abiotic material, like a rock may still carry biotic material into your, into your landscape. You know, I'm not aware like of a biosecurity issue with aggregates, to my knowledge. The issue though, when you look up harvesting gravel, there's sustainable ways of doing it. And then there's unsustainable ways where it causes a lot of pollution. It causes a lot of erosion. Is the site where it's, it's more or less like rivers, quarry. there's all different types of sites. If you fall in love with the material, I try to do my research. There, there's something called Mexican beach pebbles, which are, you see in Japanese gardens. It's like a, a flattish round gray stone. So the latest, it's not breaking news. I mean, the last five years, I think it's thought that that's not so sustainable. That it's, you can imagine if you're, if it was a plant, it's going to, and you keep harvesting it, it would go extinct. And so there's, it's, it's the same with, with us, with materials. There'd be areas where they would be depleted, where it's not, it's not renewing quickly. <laughs> or if it's, let's say it's, it's a river area, a riparian zone, and sand is being harvested. Now that maybe there's new sand being replaced every year that's coming down the river. And so that would be a sustainable, possibly, situation. Yeah, interesting. It's it's hard to be mindful of every every component when we're trying to be <laughs> ecologically minded, but I think the effort if made is is a, an important one. So that's that's a good reminder. And, and your designer would have that background where I'm like aware of this is like a Pennsylvania bluestone. It's a family quarry. It's sustainably harvested. It's going to go from Pennsylvania to Maryland. That's sustainable. It's reasonable. Well, and one other thing to maybe ask your design professional is if it's sort of safely harvested. That mm. I imagine this is very hard work and has the potential to be quite dangerous. So if you mm -hmm. are sourcing internationally, perhaps, I mean, you might just want to make sure that the quarries in other places are, are safe You're and right. not polluting the groundwater and not endangering the people that work there mm -hmm. either, which I think would be a concern for me as well. Yeah, that's a very good point. So, but there are some quarries that are quite old and actually have been used, I would say, almost hundreds of years and provide a very specific type of product. Can you describe any of those places? And oh, right. There's a Carrera marble in Italy, which is very famous. Michelangelo sculpted David and, you know, many, many famous ones. There's Indiana limestone, which is, I think it's in, in the Bloomington, Indiana region. So that's a light-colored stone, and many U.S. federal buildings are made of that. And so if you're, it also could be state capital. If you were in Austin, Texas, let's say the state capital, that, that might be Indiana limestone. There are materials, in a way, the construction trades, architects, designers drive what materials are used. And so that would be true for, for slate roofs, too. So there are certain colors, I think, for a slate roof, I think red slate comes from New York. I think green slate is Vermont. Blue, maybe that's Pennsylvania. There's Pennsylvania bluestone for paving. So it's these materials are very regional. Like I think maple syrup comes from New England. You're not going to have maple syrup. It's not going to be easy to harvest that in Texas. And so with materials, it's, it's similar. There's that, that, like you said, that sense of place because these materials are they're chemical deposits often from a long time ago or when we had the chance of meeting that Faubois artist in San Antonio. So there's artisans making materials, whether it's fencing, architecture, furniture, 
Bricks. Bricks. All oh, right. That, that, that's another great. <laughs> you went down the rabbit hole of brick research. Oh, right. <laughs> Can you share what you have discovered about bricks? <laughs> yeah. I mean, bricks, I guess, out of ignorance, I thought, oh, bricks are, those are clay. So when you see there's old pictures of brick where they make them out of molds. I know a little bit about modern bricks, but not much. So some of these largest national producers of bricks, they're harvesting shale. So it comes from, which is a clay deposit. And then they're pulverizing that into a dust, into a powder. And that's what, which I guess is easier, easier to work with than clay that's more or less like mud. And there's a big, so, so bricks, there's all types of specifications, how it's going to be used, if it's interior, exterior, if you're going to walk on it. So, well, and that's something to consider, I think, for most materials, because, you know, brick was used quite a bit because it was fire safe, mm-hmm. right? Oh, In right. terms of building construction, not used on the West Coast so much because it's not earthquake safe. So oh. you have to think carefully about where you are in terms of material use. Yeah, the, the brick history, since we spent time in the Hudson Valley, and we still you know, work there, have an office there. The tragic fire in New York City, 1835. After that point, the building code dictated more or less like use of fireproof materials. And so throughout the Hudson Valley, it was Westchester County, like way up the Hudson River. Along the banks of the Hudson River, there are clay deposits. And there were, I'm going to guess it was at least a dozen brick-making operations sprung up to supply New York City with you know millions and millions and millions of bricks. And you still see the bricks along the seashore. So there uh, are, well, riverbank, not seashore. So there might be an opportunity, depending on the laws of the municipalities, to maybe like collect a brick or two if you wanted to have a special material in mm-hmm. your collection. Um, and they're often stamped too, where it might be, it could be like the family's last name. There's a company, I remember chatting with they're in the Midwest, might be St. Louis vicinity, who their specialty is, is reclaimed bricks. So for a really special project, you're building a garden folly or a new house. There's no way to get the character of old brick except using old brick. And there's that other, there's also reclaimed curb sidewalks that would be stone. And so there's a whole trade in, in repurpose, reclaim materials. Well, and that goes back to that issue of being sustainably harvested, essentially, because you're sort of upcycling, recycling old materials. Right. What about walls? Are walls something you use a lot in your design? And how do you pick the materials? I imagine. And again, it's a little bit like using like the boulder itself maybe isn't as expensive, but getting the manpower to get it into place is. <laughs> so oh, right. what, do you, what are your thoughts on walls in the landscape? Yeah, walls add a lot of character. I mean, that's in the Northeast and New England. I guess in the Mid-Atlantic in Virginia, you see some stone walls. So they add a, a, like a real sense of place. And I think originally it was practical. For, the area was, was logged. Uh, early U.S. settlers, and then the stones were removed so you could farm. So a stone wall, you know, it's just timeless. So the, like you said, the stones themselves are not that expensive. Like particularly if they came, you know, from the vicinity, but the labor and the and the know-how to construct them. And so it used to be a stone wall was all stone. Now often the in the inside of it is concrete block often, mm. and then the stones are more or less on the facade. So an element like that increases property value. There's 
it has a high cost, but it also raises the quality. It's going to appreciate in value over time. It'll get a patina. And so design elements like that, I would say cost is not the first factor. You think maybe a simple stone wall is all that's needed. And you don't need lots of shrubs or trees or fen- or other types of fencing. So it really, I guess, design in a sense is thinking of what's the most beautiful, simple solution first, and then work, and then backing out the cost of it, how you would achieve it. And when you're doing paving, again, you're you're really going to probably enlist someone's help. But is there anything you should think of in terms of geometry and how geometry features and how we access these things? So geometry in paving, there's paving that's directional. So a brick would be a common, it's longer than it is wide. So there's different ways it can be used. If you have a path, it's going, the brick is generally going one direction. Now what happens when you meet another path? Those bricks have to reconcile themselves. Generally one path is going to be more noble than the other. So one's going to be, the bricks are going lengthwise. And then when the other path meets it, they're going Uh, sideways, let's say. Now, if you have a material like a classic in the New York City parks, there are the hexagonal asphalt pavers, which when you see them, they're actually quite handsome. You know, and I think asphalt, you think of, I think of a sort of a, you know, cheap, like like not a beautiful material, but the asphalt pavers are quite nice. So those are unidirectional. There are many materials. So even a square is directional. Because if you came in at an angle, then what happens? So unidirectional materials, like in the New York City parks, no matter what direction the, the paths are meeting each other, these materials can reconcile themselves. So that would all be part of, of the design process of the type of material. If there's going to be intersections, then the material has to be able to uh, more or less be graceful coming into intersections. And if it's not, so with brick, often when a path, when there's an intersection, you might change the material or change, like if the walkways are brick and then the patio is bluestone, that's a common or vice versa. So when you're going from a gathering space to steps to a walkway, you can change materials and then you don't have to worry about how those geometries are going to reconcile. So what are your favorite materials to work with or do you have any? You partial to <laughs> I know we're partial to certain plants, so. Well, I probably have the most experience with bluestone and brick, I would say. And, you know, working, getting my experience in my early career in the Northeast, bluestone was like readily available. It could be very modern or, it, you know, it could be very traditional. So I probably have the most experience with that. And it's commonly used around pools. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. Okay. It's pretty easy to work with. Granite. Is amazing. I mean, it's the, like the patina comes in different colors. It's there's a high level of precision. It's not likely to chip. Where bluestone, I've learned the hard way. Where doing a design, let's say, when you have a step, the bluestone can hang over the step, which you generally would see. I remember having it doing a design, and then the snowplow. It was where a step met the driveway, and the snowplow chipped it. So if I was to do that again which I have done, <laughs> where, where the curb, where a, a granite curb protected the bluestone. So from trial and experience, having good mentors, reading the different journals, there's a way to deftly use the materials where the, 
the chance of, of failure is less. So is that something you should consider? Because we did talk about you know, weathering conditions in terms of plants, of course. And so you mentioned the snowplow, which made me think of the salt, <laughs> which <laughs> made me think of wear and tear. So obviously, you know, machinery chipping things is one thing. Is the salt of, and ice of winter an issue or the heat of the sun? Is that something you need to consider? And how do you research that in terms of the materials? Yeah, def- that's definitely important. So like when we work in different parts of the country that I'm not as familiar with, I would call up local. I'd call up a local landscape architect, a local quarry, local suppliers to make sure I'm not missing something. Some of the pool paving materials, like pool decking, some of the stones used. The bluestone can get so hot you can't even walk on it. So having the grass come where there's more or less just coping, so it's like a, a, a thin border of stone around the pool, and then the lawn comes almost right up to the pool. So in a in a more country like setting. That can be pretty, but really thinking through or having a very light material, light colored. Because there are some cases the materials in this layer, like in the southern US, it's so humid. So wood fences, I mean, they, they start to curl after a matter of months, you know. So you know, really carefully. So things like aluminum can be used. And then there's all kinds of accommodations. So it, it can still look pretty, but last longer. It takes a lot of consideration because it's the cost, the installation, the time, if it has to be repaired or it fails, it's tedious. You know, you're not going to have a mason come back like the next week. It might be a few months until they're available again or a fence company. So we really try to get it right. And I quiz all these different professionals, you know, not just ask one fence company, but we're thinking of going with this wrought iron. Is this going to work, you know, in this condition? Now, is there a way... Can you go visit places to look at materials or will they send you samples or is that something they only do for professionals? Yeah, that's a great question. There's a favorite in the Hudson Valley, Bedford Stone. That's It's both, I think they more or less just have one price. So it's open to the public. They don't have, some places are wholesale only, only open to the trade. And so this would occur, I mean, all over the world, to my knowledge, whether it be a supplier, it could be fencing, paving, stone, you name it, and they would have a showroom where they would display, this is what a cobblestone wall looks like. This is what a granite patio looks like. A really important component when you read about that and work with the different materials is what does it look like when it's wet? In that fine gardening article, it it described that, which I've seen this, where it can be a very subtle material where it's like a tan and there's like a little hint of like a red vein going through the stone. When it gets wet, that red could look like a lightning bolt, like this bright red. So when selecting materials, I mean, when I've done this or seen this with the client, where you lay out five types of brick on the ground and then get them wet, this is what it's going to look like. They can change dramatically with stone, brick, and then actually having it in the location where you're going to use it. If it's shaded, it's going to look different. If it's full sun, like imagine like a, you fall in love with a light-colored marble and you think, oh, that'll be good. It doesn't, doesn't get us hot in the summer. For a pool deck, it might be blinding. It might be so white that it would be painful, which there's some office buildings in, in Manhattan I can picture across from Bryant Park. It might be called the Grace Building. It's like a white building, maybe white marble. marble. It's very striking. The paving on the sidewalk is also white, like a white marble or white stone. 
it is blinding. Even with sunglasses on, you, it hurts your eyes in the summer. And so that would be an example, you know, multi-million dollar project. They thought of every little detail, but they didn't think of that. <laughs> it does occur to me that you would want to think of not maintenance, yes, repair, yes, but also cleaning in a way that because this is the landscape. And so you could have little cat paws or dog paws or <laughs> toddler paws going across some of these surfaces and, and just thinking in terms of, is it going to preserve the look if it's getting messy and being used? And, and so that program is so important. Yeah, you're right. The, the, you know, is it a, like if it was a haircut, is it a practical haircut that could look good every day? Or does it require so much maintenance where it only looks coming from the salon? It never looks that good again. And so like with gravel, with some of the specifications, they'll say that it ought to be a quarter of an inch in size or less. And then if the gravel, if the pieces, whether they're rounded or, or chips, if they're various sizes, it will compact. If they're all the same size, it looks very pretty, but it doesn't compact. And so you're walking through it and it sinks and it looks messy. And if it's larger stones, it's going to be uneven to walk on. And then those stones get kicked everywhere into the lawn. So in some settings, it's okay. But if it's, let's say, it's right next to the lawn or it's going to be, they're going to be snow plowing. And so really playing out the materials and things, even with all that, sometimes materials need to be switched out. You know, after five years, we love this material. It's too much of a pain in the neck. We've, we need something more practical. And, and that happens. All right. Anything else to say about materials? Anything we didn't cover? I know you, you had a lot to say on the topic, so I just want to be sure we catch it all. And now might also be a good time for the design principle. Oh, right. As we come to the end of the episode. The end of the episode. End of the episode. So one of the principles for the week would be unity. We talked about, I think it was hierarchy last week. So unity and hierarchy, I mean, the, the principles relate to each other. They work with each other. So unity would be a cohesiveness. So that, that red, red rose bush that you love, it doesn't look like a sore thumb. It's because it's so out of place. So with the materials, the unity would be the careful selection that this fencing material, it works with the climate, it works with the style of the building, it's easy to maintain, it's, the cost is agreeable. And so once you select that, you're, you're gradually selecting the various elements, materials, the plants, that there is a unity to them. And so now it can be so unified that it's boring. And so we're not aiming for being boring. So one of the suggestions, which I use, whether it's, whether it's paving or plants, is having, like if it's like one of the suggestions for paving, within a given area is to limit it to like three different materials. So like brick, blue stone, and then like a granite trim, let's say. And so that's still going to be very interesting. There's times to break the rules, like at Dumbarton Oaks, Beatrix Ferrand, there's pebble mosaics where it's this multitude you know just incredible variety so it's not to say these guidelines it's, it's not to be rigid but to be mindful when we work on projects where we're developing a master plan particularly in older properties there might have been one main fence style but then that was quite expensive so then they have another fence that abuts it and then that wasn't quite modern enough and there's a third style. So then that's like a lack of unity. And so it, it feels sort of disjointed. Great. 
Well, we hope you have fun playing around with materials. I'm sure the the combining and contrasting is a is a fun part of the design and certainly a bit of a departure from the the plant material that we talk about so frequently on this this podcast. You asked about but getting samples. It's definitely possible to get samples from the the stone yards. There's even there's some that you can take with you where it's it's a like a mason board which has very thin veneer of brick or stone. And you could bring that back to your site, get it wet, look at it in the shade, like live with it for for a month. Well, and as always, I mean, be sure to check your local guidelines. There may be rules about, again, we said permeability up front, but also depending on if you live in a historic community, mm-hmm. you know, like <laughs> there may be restrictions on the materials you can use. It's fun to be inventive. It, it, it does seem like a place where people can have a lot of freedom and introduce some creativity and maybe even some do-it-yourself projects with mosaics and things like that. But, uh, but yeah, do, do your research and make sure it's something you can live with because <laughs> it's an investment. Right. And seeing examples of it. And when you yeah. travel, take pictures and even asking and say, well, now, what is that there? Well, that's decomposed granite or that's a, a crushed marble. You know, uh, the people that are maintaining the spaces often will know are the designers. Great. All right. Well, we hope your little corner of the earth is giving you some joy, whether it's uh, plants in the apartment or a small backyard. We know we're making the most of our our space and, and really getting in there. And we've done some planting and oh, getting a new some tree. vegetable beds going. And <laughs> We started to attract, uh, we had some birds visit the new tree. Yeah. You know, it's funny. We did our sensory garden episode and some, I think we forgot, although we did a whole habitat wildlife habitat episode mm-hmm. almost forgot obviously how birds and insects and all of that can bring in you know the cicadas in the summer and their sound and the birds chirping and yes so mm-hmm. all of that you can really introduce some some interest in your landscape right with- and some wonder i mean the materials it's going to be thoughtful it's a bit maybe scientific and methodical but at the end of the day it should bring joy that it's that's that beautiful brick walk. You feel like you're in the hill country or you're in the, in the horse country or wherever you might be. Great. Okay. Well, that's it for this episode. I'm sure we'll return to this topic because there's more to say. It's one of the things we've found, I think, about being almost a year in is that we've covered topics that then we almost want to return to or that then connect with other ideas. And so um, hopefully <laughs> if you enjoy listening, you'll have many more episodes from us to come. And uh, thank you very much. Subscribe, rate, review. And um, we hope you get into the landscape sometime soon if you're able to do so. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Bye-bye. In the Landscape is brought to you by King Garden a full-service landscape design, care, and education company. Enjoying what you hear on our podcast? We encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen. We'd love to hear from you, so drop us a line at connect at kinggardeninc.com. We welcome show ideas, gardening and design questions, and always corrections. We travel all over North America giving garden talks and leading trainings. Check us out at kinggardeninc.com for our speaking details. And also take a look at our online course offerings for more in-depth explorations of topics covered on our show.